In this episode, my conversation is with Kat Armas. She is an author of the book Abuelita Faith, a theologian, a teacher, a mother, a wife, a friend, a daughter, and a prophetic voice in a world that needs it more than ever. Getting to chat with her was a gift, and I'm excited to share it with you now. It doesn't hurt so bad out here. Yeah. So, yeah. Are you working on a second book? I think I've seen mm-hmm. you post a few things. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah okay. I'm super excited. I submitted the first part of my manuscript last week, and so I'm just finishing up now. And yeah, I'm exhausted, but it's a, it's I'm been a sure. fun project. Yeah, because how old is your daughter? She's about to turn six months. Oh my goodness! Writing yeah. with a little baby girl—that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I I tell people like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're doing that. I'm like, I don't recommend it. I'm not like, yay, I'm so wonderful and strong and amazing. No, I just feel terrible about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) At least you're honest. (laughs) Yeah, it's terrible. We had twins at the end. So we have two girls, seven and five, and we have twin three-year-olds. And we tell people like, it's great now because they're three. Right. But the first four months, I just forgot how to be a person. (laughs) seriously i can't imagine yeah one of my best friends has twins and i'm just like i can barely function with one so yeah (laughs) seriously that newborn light the fog that's not a game (sighs) yeah it's hard and of course you know my first child so i didn't know what to expect and so i was like oh at three months yeah sure i can go back to work and do all the things and write another (laughs) book and now i'm just like yeah very not happy all that (laughs) goodness gracious thanks for making time in the midst of being just a new mom and writing and all those things to chat with me for a little bit. I appreciate it. Do you have any questions before we dive in about the project, anything like that? Otherwise, we'll just kick it and start. Sure. If you want to just tell me a little bit about the project. Yeah. So it's just, it's called the Nehemiah Collective. I'm not convinced anymore that like the typical models and structures we use to do church work, I'm actually more convinced they don't. But what I really want to help people cultivate is a bigger and broader imagination. So I just think the Christian imagination needs some help, some rebuilding. And so I just interview people that I feel like embody that and have captured a part of what we need to rebuild in a more beautiful way and then offer resources, books, counseling, whatever it is that they need to help rebuild. Because we have a lot of people kind of in that deconstruction phase who I would say are more in like the way I deconstructed what I'm going to hold on to Jesus and then rebuild around him versus I think some deconstruction is like, even he has to go. And so there's a lot of people who are like, okay, how do I do that? I came from a fundamentalist home, a Baptist home. I came from really Catholic home. How do I like have a healthy Christian imagination? And that's where we come in. We give them people they can listen to and learn from, and then resources that allow them to feel like, oh, here we go. Because there's so much out there. A lot of people feel super Mm -hmm. overwhelmed. And we try to help lessen their fatigue, their decision fatigue, and give them healthy resources. Great. Yeah. Cool. My big, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. My big first question for you is, how did you get here? And so like when I'm here, it's not just how do you write a book or why did you write that book, but who you as a person, what brought you to the point where you even were like, this book's been birthed in me and now I need to give it to the world. Yeah, I talk a little bit about this in in the first chapter of Abuelita Faith, and it's called, I call it research grief. And Mm. as I was working through this idea of research grief, I realized like this is very common. Like a lot of people experience a research grief. And it's for me in particular, it was 
just the moment I, I was wrestling with theology and, and and wrestling with my place in the world as a theologian. And it just became really personal. I no longer was just studying these concepts or these ideas about God, but I began to study about how that intersects with my ancestors and my the people who went before me. And it was in that moment of where really, where it touched, it, I felt it in my body. Mm-hmm. It became this very a real experience of when Jesus, quote unquote, what I call the imperial Christ, arrived mm-hmm. to the Caribbean. And that's where the history of my people began. And mm-hmm. the idea of colonization, the idea of an imperial Christ was no longer this um, idea, but it was now a very personal reality. And I was able to see through that lens of how that has affected a lot of how I understand and view Jesus and not just mm-hmm. me personally, but the Jesus that we've known or that we've been taught this conquering Christ. So that was really how I got to this idea of an abuelita theology or this idea of wanting to to tease out what that means. And it was mm-hmm. when it became personal, really, more than anything. Obviously, as a Cuban woman, but then also just as a woman in theological mm-hmm. spaces. What do we do when all of our images and all of our, all the ways that God has been taught and passed down to us has only come from a male perspective. Like, what do I do with that? And what do I do when that's also only ever come through from a perspective that has nothing to do with my people, with Cuban people, with um, people who speak Spanish or people who, who they're sort of their theology is lived out in survival. What do I do with that? And yeah, that it just became very personal for me. And then from there, I began to really wrestle with, wait a minute, the greatest theologian that I've ever known is someone who would never be considered a theologian. So that's a central question that I ask. What if the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians? And that's when I thought, wait a minute, for so long, I was told my grandmother because she was uh, Roman Catholic and because mm-hmm. she never led a Bible study or she, all of these things, that would make her a genuine theologian. She was not, quote unquote, those things. And so therefore, you know, like, how do I how do I make sense of what I know about God? And as I began to look backwards and realize that this is a it's a, it's a myth that's been told to me, right? It's yeah. a story that's been told that doesn't touch the ground. That's when I, I thought, wait a minute, let me mm-hmm. tease this out. And because I don't think I'm the only one. How this idea of an Awalita theology came about. That's amazing. Now, one of the questions I have now, I'm going to try to articulate it is, like I was a, a pastor for a long time and even in the college ministry I was a part of. And then the one that I led, one, obviously all of the men we listened to were white, privileged, educated. And then they're the ones who told us who God was. Right. And we, were, we were led to believe there's a lot of heresy out there. And if you go outside of these people, you're going right. to be in trouble. How would you like guide someone into those waters where they can more learn from people like their grandmothers or from women in their life or people of color without carrying that fear? Or would you want to say to dispel it if they have it? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I dealt with that fear as well. I literally, for when I was in that world, I genuinely believed that my grandmother was not saved. And I was like, I would like evangelize her to death. And she was like, what are you doing? Like my whole life is she was 100% committed to the church and to her faith. and But I genuinely believe that, no, she needed to give up her you know, ways and take on the white man way in order to be saved. And so for me, that was very, I really dealt with that. And I think I just, I really began to, A, the more that you learn about just the history of 
just the Christianity and just the history of mm-hmm. how it intersects in the world. You really, as they say, obviously, knowledge is power, but you really start to realize, wait a minute, a lot of this, A, is man-made, literally. A lot of these myths are just told with power and fear for all these reasons. But also, I think besides just the the textbook learning thing, I began to retrust the experiences I had with God that I was I was literally I had learned to distrust them. I had learned yeah. to distrust the moments that I had with my grandmother where I 100 percent knew that God was there. And it's this idea of just do we really trust the Holy Spirit? And I think that a lot of times we don't. We're told to listen to the Holy Spirit and trust in all these things. But then if we feel the Holy Spirit speaking and moving within us, if it doesn't fall in line with a specific way of being, then we have to be careful. But it's really Mm. a distrust of God within us. And I think that just goes to we're told that our hearts are deceiving. We're told that. And personally, I think that that, you know, stems back to this idea of like total depravity. And there's this worm theology that there's nothing good in us and which is completely against just the idea of Genesis one. But yeah, so I think that it's this idea of trusting the spirit and also just becoming knowledgeable with just the history of how folks have communed with God and the reality that we have now, this like very white male colonized sort of theology is very it's a small blip in the history books if you really think about it it's very powerful but it's there's so much that has happened outside of that and so many faithful folks have been outside of that i just see in a lot of people that i talk to they've been so conditioned by fear that they don't step out of it and what's really been shocking me is as i've deconstructed or just rebuilt and rediscovered who jesus is his starting point is love, not power. Mm-hmm. And yeah. perfect love drives out fear. And so even the way that colonization works is with fear and power. Right. It dominates and pushes people to the margins. And it's just funny because I think there's a lot of people who would say, oh, I'm not a victim of colonization just because they don't see how deeply ingrained it is. But oh, yeah. I think it really has... Yeah, it's the air we breathe. It's the water. Like, we don't know anything apart from that. Um, And this idea of power, I see so much. We have this, there's power over and then there's power with. And something that I see Mm. in the life of Jesus is that it's 100% power with. But even in the one spirit, right? It's this, I'm going to empower you. Like, we are going to be empowered for love, for goodness, for all of these things. But what we see in the history of whether it's colonization or not, whether it is in when the history of colonization and, and just in other things, patriarchy and all the isms yeah. and, and the sexisms and the, the racisms is this idea of power over. And like you said, mm. it's based in fear. And because we are afraid, we need to use our power to overpower people. So, yeah, so I'm really interested in this idea of power with because I think that that changes the dynamic. And when, when it comes to hierarchy, right, it changes the dynamic when it comes to so many things because we want to have power for good power to love and power yeah but not an oppressive power no what do you this is another question what do you think happened to the priesthood of all believers and how do we give that back to ourselves yeah answers your question directly but it makes me think of this and in in regard to our conversation about colonialism and all these things but in in my book i wrestle with this idea of knowledge and i wrestle with what does it mean to have wisdom like like who is wise who has knowledge and who gets to say because we've been told what is wisdom and who is wise for uh, as long as we can remember and so we look to specific people or things to give us wisdom Mm. and so when i think of this idea of all believers and how we are all one and there is no hierarchy within who we are as a people. 
I think of this idea as where do we get our wisdom and, you know, who do we believe is wise amongst us or among us? And that's something that's key to this idea about Abanawalita theology. It is the very people who we do not think that can pass on wisdom about God or do not have, can even articulate their own thoughts about God, because that's what we assume, that poor, marginalized people just don't even have the ability to articulate. Therefore, we must tell them. Yeah. And and so I I think to undo these power structures, I think it's starting with asking who is wise and who gets to say. And then I think mm. in that sense, this idea that all of us, we are the body and the the you know weakest members of the body have the most honor and together we are, we can, I think, really live into that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it makes me think about too, I think a lot of the evangelicalism I grew up in almost taught me to distrust my own personal relationship with God and to yeah. have to run it by an authority oh, yeah. or to look a certain way. And what you're inviting us into is not just to see it and and experience it in other people, but then also recognize how that was passed on to you. And then you can give it away to others, which I feel like is a big part of your book too, which I just, it's like a realization like, oh, holy cow, I can trust myself. I don't have to deny those instincts anymore. Although I was taught to constantly. Yeah. Which is why there's so much just very sad, so much anxiety and so much depression and so many things within the Christian community because we are taught to distrust ourselves and, yeah. you know, that we are nothing and we are worms and we, it's, I don't see that in scripture. No, I'm not a big fan of Calvinism <laughs> at all. I used, to, I used to be a staunch five point Calvinist. Same. Yeah, same. I used to be like, this is it. And I remember like arguing with my dad and To be honest, like he experienced some really ugly things that I was saying, that's just, that was what God planned. And looking back, I I do apologize to him and say, I was so insensitive to you and so wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, a lot of repentance for Mm -hmm. that theology, for sure. Yeah, seriously. When you look at, I guess, not just the evangelical landscape in the West right now, but like the future of the the Jesus way, what is one thing you'd want like all of us to reimagine? And I'm even thinking if we want to really get specific age, like 18 to 35, this like new generation of people who are taking their place in the, how do I follow Jesus? What does this look like? What should we reimagine? Yeah, I think it goes back to what I was saying, this idea of who are we looking to and where are we looking to learn the most about God? Are we just looking to folks who are, quote unquote, educated in the formal sense, who are honestly completely untethered from much of the reality of much of the real world. One example, I live in Nashville and I live in this part of Nashville that they're trying really hard to gentrify, but it's a predominantly black neighborhood in front of where I live. There's just low income housing. And so we've become friends with a lot of the folks there. And this one woman, she's become my little abuelita theologian that I call her. She, We never talk theology, but just having, we make a point to just sit and chat several times a week. And it's literally through just having a conversation, just talking to her about life and through her struggles, I've learned more about God than I ever have in a classroom. It's the same thing my experiences with my grandmother. I've learned more about what it means to be a human being, which is so much of what the Bible is. So much of of the Bible is, I, I love scripture because I feel like it humanizes our experiences. We're feeling a certain way, like we're 
experiencing this. I, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm wrestling with belief and unbelief. And the Bible names that. We're, yeah. There's so many things that we struggle with that the Bible names. And yeah, it's in those moments, whether it's a conversation with someone who would not even be considered a theologian or what's sitting in and really taking in what's the life that's happening around me, right? The life that's happening in the trees and in the grass and the world that is functioning without my needing it to function or without my doing anything to make it function. Yeah, God isn't speaking and moving in all of those places that we were never trained to look. And so I think that to move forward, I think we have to have eyes to see and ears to hear God and know that God is moving and that spirit is yeah, just doing beautiful and incredible things outside of all the places we've been trained to look for God. Yeah, yeah that's so good because I was even going to say, I feel like we've also been conditioned to only look and see God in certain categories. And one thing that I've had to really practice is this prayer of show me where I haven't seen you before. And it's invited me into a much bigger and more expansive experience of who God is than one I could have seen before. And oh, yeah. to be honest, in places that I was like, there's no way I could learn from there. And I've been rightfully humbled. Right. By yeah, there's a one of my favorite details in the Bible is it happens to Jacob and it happens to, I think, Moses and a lot of the the patriarchs. But uh, they'll be, and, and I'll talk about the Jacob one where he's he has a dream and he's laying down. It's the dream about the staircase and the angels and, and he's laying on this rock. And then all of a sudden he wakes up and he realizes, wait a minute, God was here and I had no idea. And he goes and he builds an altar and he blesses that place because God was there and he had no. And I feel like that's such a perfect and beautiful description of what it means to be human. Wait a minute, because they'll notice, and this happens several times, like they'll notice after the fact, right? Like in the moment, you're just like doing your thing, you're distracted or whatever, just being a person in the world. And then all of a sudden you step back and you think, wait a minute, God was there and I totally missed it. And so that's a practice that I've been engaging in is just making sure that I stop and I try to think back and, hey, wait a minute, what are moments throughout my day that God was there and I just missed it? And I even started doing a little practice of just like building little altars or just to remember and just to commemorate mm -hmm. that moment as sacred and as holy. But yeah, it's in those spaces and places and people that we, we often miss. And what we don't miss, it really is one of the most beautiful, sacred moments that we can really commune with God, for sure. Yeah. It breaks down all those walls and shows you that the divine is waiting to meet you in places of beauty or simplicity or right. like just watching the wind blow a few leaves by that happened to me the other day. Just yeah. becoming in tune to it is really beautiful. So then on the flip side of the coin, what I like to ask is, what do you feel like is a misconception, maybe a thorn in the side of the way a lot of people grew up into the way evangelical told evangelicalism told us to be Christians that you'd love to try to like pull out or help heal so that we can run more beautifully and further? Yeah, I think we touched on this, but it's this idea that there's one right way to be, one right way to believe, one right way for faith to look. And I think that we see this so much in the Bible. And I'm a Bible nerd, so I talk about the Bible all the time because I, I want to find ways to I was going to say, it's all over your book. <laughs> yeah, I, I really committed to this idea of liberating so much of um, what has done the opposite of liberate. But, but we see so much in scripture of just how faith looks so different for so many people, right? What was faithful for one person was completely different for another person. And and not only that, faith in the most scandalous and 
ways that we would never tell folks to follow God in that way now, folks did, right? From civil disobedience, like disobeying power structures in society to literally using women, using their sexuality to do, to survive, to do what's what they needed to do to just live, right? And being called blessed and righteous by God for that. And, And so I think that when we really look at the stories of so many women throughout history and women in the Bible in particular, I see so much of this idea that faith, faith and, and spirituality and a relationship with God is dynamic and it's changing and looks completely different in every situation and every space. But also I like to say contextual. And I'll read that faith. I point out it's verse that now I think it's in Proverbs and I can't believe I forgot the exact verse, but maybe it's like Proverbs 24, or Proverbs 26 or something. And yep. it says, yeah. <laughs> and it says, don't answer a fool according to their, their folly or you'll be just like them. And then literally the very next verse says, answer a fool according to yeah. their folly or else something. And it's this idea that, you know, wisdom and faith and doing the right thing and having a relationship with the divine, all of those things is contextual. It's dynamic. Mm. It's changing. If we believe that God is alive and moving, then every relationship we have with a living person or being is going to shift and change and you know mm. look different. So yeah, so all of that to say that I think um, that's definitely something that I want to continue to uh, have folks wrestle with. Is there yeah. Really one right way to have a relationship with God or to understand God. Yeah. I love that too, because what I hear it also charging us with is this undercurrent of an invitation to unity when you're not so concerned about it looking this right way or being this same thing. You can actually hold the practices and perspectives of your brothers and sisters who do it differently. Yeah. And find commonality and then learn instead of being like, ah, but you don't fit inside my box. And Mm. I think that's going to be a big part of how we build something more beautiful is unity. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started seminary, I, a big part of my, I guess my story or my Mm -hmm. developing this sort of theology was the idea that women had a specific role they had to fit into or faith looked a certain way if you were from a certain area. And so my professors were white males who a lot of them were from the South and from farms or spaces like that was perfectly fine. But that wasn't my reality. Like yeah. <laughs> I was raised by a single mother and a single grandmother. I had no male yeah. people in my life that I needed to, quote unquote, submit to. So what does that mm. mean? Literally mm. just in a very practical, how in the world was I supposed to fit into these models and these structures when that was literally just not my reality. And so what I, you know, how do I? So I think that is also, yeah, just realizing that there are so many different ways that people exist in this world. And to think that God is not intimately acquainted um, Hmm. with my experiences being raised by a single mother and a single grandmother in a big city in an immigrant community versus how God would interact or how God, not interact, but how the experiences of someone in a completely different context than me. It just doesn't fit. One of the one model just doesn't fit. Do you feel like, this is a little off topic, do you feel like you still have to fight for people to respect your opinion as a female theologian? Sure, but I don't really think about it. Yeah, I was Um, like, you don't seem like the person who's like, oh, I wonder if they respect me because you show up and give us what you've got. And I appreciate that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I'm sure I don't. I don't know. I don't really think about it. Again, Abuelita Faith, for example, I'm not trying to convince you that women are, I'm just sharing, you know, you're spreading facts. That's what you're doing. Right. Like I'm just sharing (laughs) facts or I'm just trying to exegete something the way that I think is whatever. 
but I'm not like, I don't, I, I maybe, I don't know. I don't think I'm trying to convince maybe, you, you know, you, you know, but yeah. So I don't think that's necessarily, I feel empowered and I'm happy where I'm at and whoever okay. is not there, then that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I think you're a badass. So that's not. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. When you think about the last six months, what do you think you've learned? If you look back about yourself, what do you think something you've learned about yourself that surprised you? It's my last question. Oh, that's such a good question. I wish I had so many hours to think about it. Even if you're just like, uh, uh, that I need more sleep? <laughs> Def- definitely, yes. No, but I will say two things, uh, sort of two sides of the same thing. One, the process of giving birth and the process of breastfeeding and all of these very embodied things certainly has changed me just in my relationship to mothering God and my relationship to my body. And I'm even more so convinced of how sinister patriarchy is. And, and, and I've seen so many connections to a woman's body and to God, a bleeding woman and a bleeding God and a birthing woman and a, a woman who births God, but also a God who births creation. And so there's so many, and I'm writing, I'm working on a second book right now, and and I'm touching a lot on a lot of these themes and just the idea that there's that there's power and energy and like the moon and, and all of these incredible things. That's also in the Bible. In the Bible, God says to celebrate the new moon, all of these things. Yeah. And it's all, a lot of them are so connected to women's bodies, which is incredible to me. And I, it just makes sense that the patriarchy is going to do everything that it possibly could to silence or stifle the power of a woman and her body because it is incredible. So that's something that I've just, I'm in complete and utter awe of what, how God created us and to, to be and to do. And also on the other end of that, you know, we, we have absolutely no support. And, and this was also my fault is that I took on so much because capitalism tells me that I have to. Right. Yeah. And I have to keep producing because I am just an object that is needs to produce things for consumption. And so on the other end of that, I'm amazed at the capability of a human person. But I am also have yeah, been very saddened by what our society expects of people to just produce like machines and to just be superhuman. And that's something that I've really felt as I'm still sleep deprived. My child, you know, still wakes up in the middle of the night and I'm still expected to produce and to show up in the ways that I was showing up before. And and it shouldn't be that way. So, yeah. Thank you for being so vulnerable. I really appreciate that. My One of my favorite birthing images actually is when Elijah after he calls the fire down from heaven, he goes to the cave. And the phrasing it used is that he gets into a birthing posture to pray for the rain to come. Mm. And it's just this birthing prayer. That's so cool. Like yeah. giving birth love to that, that rain. I just love when you said that. It made me think of that. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule and all that you have going on. It really is a gift to chat with you. And that's when I say it. I love that you are a theologian. That your voice is out there and that women like you are giving voice to people who we've ignored for a long time because I think what you're doing is going to give us just another shade in like the stained glass of who God is that we've left covered for way too long. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, we want to help you rebuild the holy imagination that we are all meant to have as we follow Jesus. 
You can reach out to us at the Nehemiah Collective at gmail.com or look us up on Instagram and send us a message.